Prestige heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited, nay, eviscerated, to bring you the news. So, Derek, in 1824, a scientist named Michael Faraday was experimenting with some gases, and at the end of the experiment, he developed the rubber balloon. What happened between that moment and last week? when a Chinese balloon seemed to float over the entire United States. Well, I'll tell you, the communists took over China is what happened. I mean, this is the big event of our time. You got it, Derek. I'm glad. That was a test. The damn communist takeover of China is, you know, we're still hung up on that. Um, I think eviscerated is the right word because I felt eviscerated (laughs) watching this national conniption fit take place all all week. Yeah, so the, the, the China apparently sent a spy balloon uh, over the United States. The Chinese government claims it's a wet, was a weather balloon that blew off course. Um, this is uh, the weather balloon is, is just lame as an explanation uh, in general, but you know, it's, you know, it stretches uh, belief. This was probably a spy balloon. Who cares? The United States is spying on China in 18 <laughs> different ways, even as we speak. Um, but it was detected. And this, captured the imagination of some certain categories of American from the NATSEC community to the guys who, uh, I guess, wanted to go out in their backyard and try to shoot it down with their rifles. Uh, Are there reports of people shooting at it? I, there were reports of people saying they wanted to shoot it. I don't know. Yeah, if there were reports I, did of anyone actually, actually do it? I mean, there was like at least one sheriff's office. I can't remember where had to issue a, a statement. They're like, you're not going to hit this <laughs> thing. It's 60,000 feet in the air. Please do not <laughs> fire bullets into the sky. Because yeah, it's they like have a Looney Tunes cartoon. Uh, this is not Christ. a good idea. So, I mean, it, it must have been enough of a thing that. Uh, at least one of these like local law enforcement agencies uh, felt the need to comment on it. So the balloon, you know, meandered around and had a little fun trip from Montana down into the central United States. Uh, I don't know if it was like, you know, touring the Mississippi Valley or something uh, for a while. Eventually, it wound up off the Carolina coast where the U.S. military, I shit you not, sent F-22s into the <laughs> sky, our most advanced fighter airplane uh, other than the F-35, which probably, you know, 10 of them would have been lost in this operation, <laughs> uh, sent the F-22 to shoot this That'd balloon so down with a missile. That'd be so funny if the balloon missile. defeated the F-22. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, you know, anything's possible. That's Top Gun Dog fighting. Dogfighting dog the F-35. So there's been all manner of fallout from this. Anthony Blinken was supposed to go to China uh, this week, which supposed to be, it was a big kind of, you know, had been uh, pumped up as a big moment for uh, the U.S. and China to try and uh, get their relationship back on some solid footing. He canceled that trip uh, because of the balloon. Because, <laughs> I'm sorry, because of the balloon. He canceled the trip. Uh, I, in, in his defense, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and uh, try to really defend Anthony Blinken, but in his defense, the nuttiness, uh, of the discourse about the balloon in DC was so, so high, uh, that if he had gone, I don't think he would have been empowered to, to make any kind of progress 
on a diplomatic relationship anyway, so it probably doesn't really matter uh, that he canceled the trip. The balloon uh, is splashed down in the ocean. It is being retrieved uh, as we speak by the U.S. Navy. Uh, they're planning to, I guess, study its uh, strange, so the strange sorcery by which the Chinese government was able to make this device float in the sky. Uh, we have to have to figure this out. Um, and, and I'm sure there are some spy components in the, the, you know, the, the vehicle itself that they want to check out and see at least what the, uh, what it was looking at. Uh, I mean, we have a pretty good idea. Montana, uh, is yeah, where the missiles are. Yeah. Uh, so that's probably what they're looking at. It's just, you know, off, you know, off the top of my head. Uh, but they, you know, they're going to, they're going to check that out. The Chinese government is, um, irked by this. Uh, for some reason they would like, uh, I guess they're irritated that we shot it down and then, uh, that we're not sending it back. Uh, which seems a little bit weird. If you're going to send a spy balloon, you should probably be prepared to have it lost. The uh, details of this just get more and more weird the the longer, the, the more you kind of uh, read about this. There was a story on Tuesday in Reuters that apparently Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman briefed 150 foreign diplomats from 40 countries about the balloon. Uh, that, that is just, that's really good use of everybody's time. I think the, the diplomats, uh, in question probably felt like they were really getting their money's worth. Uh, the U.S. has accused China of having a spy balloon fleet that it's sending all over the world. <laughs> the red to balloons. Spy on military, <laughs> military installations. Uh, there was ro- a report of a second killer balloon in the sky over Latin America, uh, over Colombia briefly, and then Costa Rica at one point. Uh, the Chinese Chinese government has acknowledged that the balloon is theirs, but they say, again, it is a civilian balloon, something about uh, a type of balloon that's used for flight tests. I don't know what that uh, could possibly mean, frankly, but uh, uh, so there is at least uh, there is a second balloon. Uh, this is the we're getting into to JFK conspiracy territory here, but there's a second balloon uh, on the grassy knoll uh, <laughs> in South America. So uh, you know this has been. Is just it still a, in the a, sky? The second balloon? I, as far as I know, I mean nobody okay. sh- no, nobody sent up their fifth generation fighter planes <laughs> to shoot it down with a one point three maybe they did million dollar missile. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe they sent the F-35s after that one and they lost, uh, all hands were lost, uh, you know, <laughs> condolences. The, the discourse from balloon has gone from balloons to, um, missile launchers. Apparently the U.S. Strategic Command informed Congress this week, uh, in a letter that China now has more intercontinental ballistic missile launchers than the United States. Now this includes mobile launchers and silos. So any land-based launchers. They don't have as many missiles as the United States does. They don't have as many warheads as the United States does to put on those missiles. But apparently the launcher gap is the the big uh, thing to be worried about here. Uh, I guess, you know, they could stuff those things, the empty ones, with anything. Uh, and that's that's got to be terrifying on some level. Uh, so, yeah, things are, are you know, really, really Things are up good. in the air. China they're up in the air. China is, uh, as always, an existential threat. I guess uh, there's a new report now uh, that just uh, came out kind of Thursday morning local time uh, that North Korea may have unveiled a solid-fueled intercontinental ballistic missile uh, of its own during a nighttime parade. This would be a major development for their military. I mentioned 
North Korea only because there is also a poll whose findings were released this week, the Harris poll, uh, that finds that, and this was pre, kind of pre balloon, I think. So maybe it's, it's changed. Uh, but the poll found that, uh, the American public is substantially less hawkish about either China or North Korea than our government is. Uh, two thirds of the respondents said the U.S. should be engaging, uh, in dialogue with China to reduce tensions. Uh, and 68%, uh, said that Joe Biden should offer to hold direct talks with Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader. Uh, and so the, needless to say, neither of those things seem to be on the table as far as the, uh, Biden administration is concerned. So uh, once again, the American people, uh, you know, dovish, uh, they're gonna, we're gonna get, get us all killed. These, these damn American people, the public, we need to replace them, uh, with people who are aware of the threat. Uh, I've actually seen pieces like that. The balloon is gonna be the big awakening for a, a complacent American public, uh, to Fourth finally, finally understand the, <laughs> the Chinese threat. Uh, there was a, I think the, the head of uh, the Center for a New American Security, Richard Fontaine, had just a perfect, uh, example of this in foreign policy this week. Just, uh, completely, uh, unhinged. Uh, so that's, that's where we're at on the, on the balloon front. Uh, hopefully there will be more of these because I've really enjoyed this actually the last few days. So I'm going to let listeners in on uh, a little bit of the sausage making, which is that we had considered doing a balloon special and we had actually reached out to several people who you might consider balloon specialists. And one of the responses was effectively, there is no such thing as a balloon specialist and anyone who says otherwise is lying. <laughs> so I just want you all to know that. All right. So that, I feel like I, that was like, I changed my Twitter bio to say I'm the lead balloon correspondent. So, uh, for, yeah, you, for this you, show, so you're I a specialist. In terrorism, I am. I am China, now a specialist on on balloons. Absolutely. So uh, let's let's get a, a bit more serious and uh, turn to Israel and what's been going on uh, over there. Yes, Israel. Uh, as people know, as we've been covering, uh, the Israeli military has been on a torrid pace of killing Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, that pace continued this week. Uh, it mostly confined to Jericho, uh, which has become the new hotspot, apparently, or the new ground zero for the Israelis as far as their frequent arrest raids, uh, trigger happy arrest raids. Uh, they, they killed, I think, five people in one raid this week that were, who were later identified as, uh, militants probably affiliated with Hamas. In another incident on Tuesday, they killed a 17 year old uh, kid in Nablus. Uh, in another arrest raid, uh, the, the aggregate situation here is that 42 Palestinians at least, by the time people listen to this, it may be more than that. Uh, 42 Palestinians at least have been killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank so far this year. That is, uh, of course, more than one a day. And it is a pace that probably cannot be sustained without something breaking. A lot of people, a lot of observers, writers, even Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, are starting to use the intifada, the I word, which is intifada, speculating that we could be on the brink of a third intifada. I always take these kinds of things with a grain of salt because it gets, uh, the, the specter of a third intifada gets raised every time tensions go up. And it's been almost two decades now since the second intifada ended and, and it hasn't happened yet. So I think, uh, you have to kind of, you know, temper your, your expectations here. But, um, as I say, this is, this is a pace. This is a situation that cannot continue, uh, the way it's continuing without something, uh, giving in a, in a very bad way. So, uh, with an Israeli government in power that shows no inclination 
uh, towards uh, tamping down the violence may well be provoking it intentionally. Um, they're, they're certainly taking other actions that are provocative. Uh, I think uh, Smotrich, uh, the, the, the finance minister, one of the far right people in Netanyahu's cabinet, uh, just basically told uh, Anthony Blinken to, to go pound salt. Uh, Blinken had advised during his uh, recent visit to Israel that maybe you could tone down the settlement expansion and uh, the line out of this government is um, screw you, we're going to do what we want and we're going to keep building settlements, which uh, only provokes more uh, kind of tension and, and hostility. Uh, so, I, you know, at the very least, they don't care uh, if they continue to provoke any more hostility. And, at, at, you know, in the worst case scenario, this is something that uh, they're actually trying to, to, to make happen. But either way, uh, as I say, it is uh, a situation where something is going to break, I think, uh, in, in the not-too-distant future. Has there been any response from the quote-unquote international community or, or governments in the region to what's been going on, or has have they mostly kept silent? I mean, most of the governments in the region now have diplomatic normal you know have normalized their diplomatic relations with Israel. So uh, their their criticism, uh, you know, you can find it here and there, but it's very muted. Uh, even Saudi Arabia, which is the big fish that the Israelis have been trying to to nab and and you know get a cut a deal with, um, even the Saudis are are not inclined, terribly inclined to to be critical, mostly because of Iran. There's there's this sort of uh, underlying coalition or unspoken coalition between uh, those two countries when it comes to Iran. Um, you know, other Arab states, not necessarily in the Middle East, but uh, Morocco, uh, Sudan, uh, have been, you know, making inroads toward improving their relationships uh, with Israel. The, the Moroccan government just uh, a few days ago said it was going to, uh, you know, increase its level of cooperation. Of course, Morocco's big concern is not the Palestinians, it's Western Sahara, and they've gotten a lot of mileage there out of uh, normalizing their relationships with their, their relationship with Israel. The Sudanese junta just a couple of days ago uh, committed to uh, finally implementing the Abraham Accord deal that they struck. Uh, that could still take some time because the junta is not really empowered to, to take a step like that. They claim they're going to wait until they have a civilian government back in place, which could be who knows when. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that may not happen anytime soon, but still it's, it's telling that, uh, this, this situation in the West Bank hasn't really interrupted Israeli diplomacy in any way. Thanks, Derek. Um, why don't we now move on to Peru? Yes. Uh, so just as a, a brief update, I don't have a lot here, but this is another story that we've been following. Obviously, protests have continued in Lima uh, through the week. Um, they're continuing in the southern part of Peru, uh, again, calling for uh, the removal of the interim government under uh, Dina Boluarte that is currently in office, uh, the release of Pedro Castillo, the former president of Peru, who's still uh, under arrest. Uh, and some move to, to hold early elections as soon as possible, really, and, and possibly uh, along with that uh, to uh, try to rewrite, to do a, do a rewrite or a process of rewriting uh, Peru's constitution. Uh, there have been several proposals in the Peruvian Congress over the last week, two weeks, to bring forward uh, the general election, which right now, I believe, is still technically set for 2026, although... Congress has voted to move it up to 2024. I, I don't think that's a final vote, though. I think they, they would have to do at least one more vote uh, on that. But um, 
there are have been a number of proposals to bring it up even further to maybe December or October. I think one proposal even had it uh, happening over this uh, summer, so just uh, a few months away. These have been proposed by different factions of the Congress. You've had Boluarte make her own proposal. You've had leftists make a proposal. The Free Peru Party uh, put forward its own proposal that came with a uh, referendum on uh, redrafting per- the Peruvian Constitution. You've had uh, some conservative parties kind of put put forward kind of feelers about this. They've all been rejected and everybody's sort of rejecting the other, you know, the other group's uh, idea for moving the election forward. Uh, there's no consensus. There's no, it's a very fragmented Congress anyway. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any consensus behind any of these plans. So uh, basically nothing has changed. Uh, I, I mean, I, I say this is uh, an update. The update is uh, things are pretty much continuing uh, as they have been. And, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be any sign of uh, cohering around a plan that that might have a chance of uh, ending or at least diminishing the protest. So, uh, not not great news uh, on that front. Going to ask the same question: Has there been a regional response? Um, I mean, the regional response has mostly come from, uh, you know, if you want to say, if you want to cl- characterize these states as the, you know, second pink tide. Uh, the countries that have elected uh, center left to left uh, governments in in the last couple of years, uh, and it's been in support of Castillo, which has led to a lot of things like the you know the interim government, uh, you know, cutting ties with uh, I think Honduras at one point, or and they've accused uh, Evo Morales, the former president of Bolivia, of fomenting. Uh, the protests in the southern part of the country among uh, the predominantly uh, indigenous population there. Um, so, yes, there has been a regional response. It hasn't done anything to to move uh, the Peruvian government or certainly not the, the conservatives in the Peruvian Congress uh, to take any action. They've, there's sort of been a backlash in a sense to, uh, you know, accusations of interference in domestic affairs, the kind of thing you would expect. Uh, that's that's been the, the the back and forth. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Ukraine. So Ukraine, uh, things are a little bit in a in a holding pattern, but there are indications of that the Russians are gearing up uh, for a, a a pretty significant offensive. This is uh, the Ukrainians are have been saying this for a while now that the Russians are are massing troops for some kind of. Uh, winter operation. The the winter offers some uh, with the ground frozen. Temperatures are down. Ground's frozen. It's easier to move around. It's a little bit uh, of a respite between you know the typically wet autumn and the typically wet spring when it's more difficult to move around. So this is not a, uh, a not an out out of the question thing for for the mil- the Russian military to be planning something uh, to happen soon. Of course, the first anniversary of the war is coming up in a couple of weeks and there's some sense that they might want to make a big splash uh, related to that. So uh, what's been happening is uh, it sounds like there's been more progress uh, on the Russian front toward the city of Bakhmut and Donetsk Oblast, which has been their focus for the Wagner group in particular, but the Russians uh, more broadly for, for weeks now, probably a couple of months at this point. Uh, there was, there was a claim from the head of the Wagner group, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the oligarch, uh, on over the weekend, uh, indicating that his forces were actually engaged in street to street fighting on the outskirts of Bakhmut. So that would indicate that they have made some progress, uh, and probably, you know, uh, 
I don't know how much longer the Ukrainians can can hold their defense of that city, frankly. Um, the Ukrainians, again, uh, you know, who have been claiming for a while now that the Russians are getting ready for something big, say that they're see they see indications uh, of the possible um, that the Russians are massing troops in Luhansk. Uh, oblast, which would probably mean that they intend to uh, try to retake uh, Kharkiv Oblast, which is uh, neighbors Luhansk. Luhansk is almost entirely uh, still under Russian control, but Kharkiv, uh, the Ukrainians recaptured in September uh, in their big uh, kind of grand counteroffensive last year. Um, so that's possible. There's also uh, apparently, according to the Ukrainians, indications of some that, that there may be uh, an operation in Zaporizhia. Uh, the Russians may try to take the rest of that province. They control part of it, but not all of it. Um, it's unclear uh, which of these might be the the direction that the Russians go. And it's possible they could go, they could try both. I mean, they, they had that partial mobilization uh, last year that, that seems to be at this point now paying off in terms of just the sheer number of bodies that they have available. Uh, they probably have enough to sustain two offensive operations, uh, at least long enough to see which one kind of looks like it's, uh, having more, more of an impact. And then they could throw their resources behind that one or, uh, you know, to do like a, a, a kind of, misdirection on one of these fronts and uh you know make their their main offensive on, on the other it's unclear you know how that would proceed but i think they have the uh, the manpower to do something like that um so yeah that's where things stand it's sort of in in holding i mean the ukrainians have been talking about their own counteroffensive, of course in the south probably but they're in a bit of a a, a limbo now while they wait for some new western uh weapons tanks longer range artillery uh, they're still agitating for planes, uh, so they—they, they, it's questionable whether they could uh, do anything, or they're just sort of stuck in place until uh, some of these weapons get there, uh, and their their soldiers are trained up to use them. That that could take a while. Has there been any response from the Biden administration? Um, I mean, the main response from from the Biden administration has been, uh, you know, was the tanks and this you know, this latest. Uh, I think two billion dollar round of weapons, which included uh, the uh, included some longer range artillery, not the ultra long range artillery that the Ukrainians want, uh, but longer range uh, stuff that could could bring, for example, Crimea uh, more comfortably into the range of Ukrainian artillery, and and certainly all the the uh, kind of behind the lines facilities that the Russians have in in the Donbass and eastern Ukraine. Um, you know that stuff is uh, even that though is is going to take some time to actually get uh, onto the battlefield and filter out. We saw this with the HIMARS units. That was the big, you know, uh, previous kind of artillery uh, influx, and it took a while after those things were announced before they finally started showing up and started making uh, some impact on the battlefield. So, uh, you know, I, I think. Uh, they're holding the line right now on F-16s. I think we talked about this last week. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I don't think they're going to hold that line for very much longer, but we'll see. If if the Russians, I mean, either way, really, if the Russians have a breakthrough operation somewhere, breakthrough offensive, and, and suddenly gain a lot of territory, there's going to be a massive amount of pressure uh, on the Biden administration to flood more weapons uh, into Ukraine. On the, on the contrary, 
if the Ukrainians manage to hold the line or even, you know, do their own counteroffensive and that has success, there's also going to be massive pressure on the Biden administration to flood more weapons into Ukraine to kind of uh, capitalize on that. So, uh, either way, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the armaments part of this is only going to continue to escalate. Good thing we put all of our money in Lockheed. Um, so absolutely, let's turn to the most depressing and upsetting story of the week. Um, sorry to end on this one, everyone, but but that's the earthquake that occurred in Turkey and Syria. So, Derek, could you tell us what exactly happened? What has the domestic responses been? Um, what what have they been? Uh, and how has the international community responded? Sure. Uh, th- yeah, this is really tragic. Uh, Monday, there was a massive earthquake, 7.8 magnitude earthquake, uh, I think was the last I saw uh, information-wise, um, that was centered just west of the Turkish city of Gaziantep, which is kind of in southwestern Turkey, close to the Syrian border. Um, it was followed, and, and just making it worse, it was followed by a number of very large aftershocks, one of which, at least one of which, was almost as powerful as the earthquake itself uh, that just compounded the damage. Um, it's been very severe. There've been drone, there's been drone footage from Turkey and across the border in Syria. Um, you know, a lot of these places in northern Syria are just straight up refugee camps at this point or, um, you know, have been damaged by the, the, the last 11 years or 12 years at this point of war. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's one of the worst possible locations that you have Syrian refugees on both sides of the border, people displaced from other parts of Syria into the northern, you know, border region. And many of them having millions of them having uh, gone into Turkey now displaced uh, or, you know, living as actual refugees in Turkey. Um, just one of the, you know, if there was a place where this was not needed, uh, not that it's needed anywhere, but uh, this is just, uh, you know, compounding uh, over a decade of misery uh, for a lot of these people. Just, just utterly tragic. Uh, the death toll, uh, the last I saw was uh, it had climbed over 12,000. Uh, most of those have been in Syria, at least 9,000, uh, over 3,000 uh, confirmed dead in Syria. But because of the because the region where uh, most of the damage took place is, is under rebel slash Turkish control, so it's outside the government's purview, uh, it's been very difficult to assess. Um, and we'll get into the aid thing in a second, but it's been very difficult, I think, to assess uh, just how bad things are. The recovery effort is slower uh, here than it is in Turkey or in Syria than it is in Turkey. Uh, so that death toll may be quite low. I would expect uh, the the death toll to continue to rise uh, pretty dramatically because there's still so much rubble to clear through and, and things are at a point where your hope of finding anybody alive still in the rubble is 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 diminishing pretty pretty rapidly. Um, you know, on top of that, you've got tens of thousands of people uh, wounded, injured uh, in the quake. You've got hundreds of thousands uh, displaced. Again, a lot of them who have already been displaced uh, from their homes by by the Syrian civil war. So just uh, just horrifying, uh, horrifying stuff. Um, the recovery effort is continuing. There has been some international support already to Turkey. Uh, teams of of you know, kind of disaster relief, et cetera, have been arriving in Turkey to, to assist. Uh, there's been some criticism in Turkey of the government's response, claims that it's been slow and spotty, that, that some places uh, like the city of Hatay, which is in uh, 
far southwestern Turkey, uh, where the damage was quite severe. Uh, there have been claims that it took the government uh, very, you know, quite a long time to uh, to respond to this. I, I mentioned this. Uh, you know, it's kind of crashed, I guess, to talk about politics, but Turkey is coming up on an election and this stuff is inherently political, uh, unavoidably so. So that's, that's a, something to, uh, to take into consideration. In Syria, obviously there's, it's a mess. I mean, there's, there's the region that got hit is not under government control. Uh, the international community does not want to work with the Assad government. Uh, in any way, they're still ostracizing and heavily sanctioning, uh, at least from, from the U.S. perspective, uh, that government. Um, so getting aid into this area is challenging at best. There are, there's the one kind of cross border channel that, that aid has been uh, coming through Turkey. Uh, that was affected. I, I think they're back up and running to some degree with that, but, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a question of resources. I mean, they were barely providing enough, uh, resources to kind of keep people alive under, uh, previous conditions, let alone, uh, in the aftermath of this earthquake. So there is a question of how do you get resources in and who's going to be willing to, uh, to spend the money, pledge the money to, to do that when, you know, they're, uh, trying to, still trying to isolate the Assad government and pretend that, uh, Assad hasn't won the civil war. Uh, the UN has been calling on the Assad government to open up, uh, relief channels into the, these rebel held parts of Syria, which seems to be, uh, seems a little wild to me because I don't think it's the Assad government that's a problem here. I think it's, uh, the U.S. and the West that are the big problem, but, uh, you know, we can't, can't criticize them, I suppose. Uh, so that's, that's a situation that's just fraught with complications. And I really don't know at this point how it's going to shake out, but it's only going to, uh, only compounds the, the suffering of the quake. So I know there's little we in the United States could actually do, but are there any organizations that people should donate to or that people should look into that you find particularly useful? Um, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to tell people what to do with their, their money, but I, I, uh, global giving is, uh, is a very reputable charity. As far as I know, uh, they have a, an earthquake relief fund up. Uh, you could look into that. Uh, doctors without borders will probably be involved in some way. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's another place that might be worth checking out. There are, uh, regional charities. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say, uh, people should can do their own research into those things, but um, you know, I, I uh, again, anything you know is gonna gonna help. But always, I recommend uh, you know check out some of the like charity aggregator research services that are out there to make sure that you're uh, contributing to to a place where the money's actually going to go to people who need it and not to uh, you know uh, rent on a boardroom or, or somebody's private jet or something like that. Uh, well, Derek, thanks for that. And thank you for keeping us all up with the news. Um, everyone, we've got uh, a very interesting bonus episode coming this Sunday with uh, Adam Tews, who you might know. Uh, and until then, we will see you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.